Welcome to the Michelle Miao Show at the Commonwealth Club of California. I'm John Zipper. I'm the Commonwealth Club's Vice President of Media and Editorial and your co-host for today's program. Now I'm proud to announce Michelle Miao. She's a member of the Commonwealth Club's Board of Governors. She's also the producer and the host of the Michelle Miao Show. Good to see you again, Michelle. Thank you so much, John, and thank you to the club for having the platform uh, and providing the platform to have these discussions. Portland protests have continued with over 70 days of unrest, despite state and federal officials coming to an agreement to withdraw federal agents. Mayor Ted Wheeler said in a news conference last night, you are not demonstrating, you are attempting to commit murder. And he was referring to an unlawful assembly the police had declared after protesters showed up to a precinct. So how did Portland, um, how did Portland get here? Our guest today has been covering the Portland protests since day one. He's worked as a conflict journalist in Iraq and Ukraine. He's a reporter for Bellingcat, and he's also the host of the popular podcast Behind the Bastards. Let's welcome Robert Evans to the program. Robert, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. So like I mentioned, I, I mean, uh, you know, it's it's been over 70 days of uh, unrest. This started about May 27th when the nation also started protesting after the death of George Floyd. Uh, let's dial it back and go all the way so we can help our viewers and our listeners here uh, give them some context. Did the protests start the way that most protests did in the, the country, which was peaceful? Uh, yeah, it started actually the very first thing that happened kind of in the wake of George Floyd's death uh, was the occupation of the Portland Justice Center by kind of a, a an activist um, kind of a, a collection of of activists of color in the city that were that were supported by an organization called the Youth Liberation Front. They all occupied the steps of the Justice Center for a couple of nights. There was one little police raid, um, but it was mostly pretty pretty low key up until the 29th when a very large crowd assembled around the Justice Center after a march from Peninsula Park. And kind of there was just this critical mass uh, of people around the Justice Center. There were no police around it. And um, I think it was that and sort of things that were in the air as a result of Minneapolis, the third precinct had just burned. And so kind of once the crowd hit this certain critical mass, people just broke into the Justice Center um, and started trashing it, you know, lit some fires inside of it. Uh, and then the police came and started tear gassing people. And that kind of kicked off what has been, you know, 70 nights of uh, kind of up and down sort of in intensity protests, but but generally pretty violent. Most nights have ended in, in groups of police officers uh, attacking members of a crowd um, generally repeatedly. You know, earlier on, they would tear gas huge chunks of the city, including a lot of people in traffic. There have been, uh, there's at this point, like a massive interlocking network of restraining orders against the Portland police um, that have been instituted as a result of the just, just shocking number of lawsuits against them that have been placed by people who have been, you know, tear gassed and assaulted uh, and illegally arrested. So right now we're kind of down to the point where when the police want to disperse a crowd, they're just bull rushing them over and over and over again, just charging the crowd. And, of course, doing stuff like uh, shoving journalists onto the sidewalk off of the street, which they don't have the legal right to do, doing the same thing to legal observers, ACLU observers. Um, that's what happened last night, what's been happening in the last couple of nights. So that's kind of where we are right now. Let's go back even further than that. And before this happened before the George Floyd uh, spark that really set off this whole uh, nationwide, even worldwide attention. What was the situation like in Portland between police, African-Americans, other minorities, between activist groups and the city's mayor? I mean, what was the environment like 
Yeah, you know, there, there was there, there's been a lot of underlying tensions in Portland. Now, for one thing, Portland's always a city that's had a, a long history of of kind of fringe left activism. So that's that's been a factor here for for decades. You know, George H.W. Bush famously declared the city Little Beirut in the early 90s. Um, and since the uh, the 2016 election, there have been kind of an escalating series of uh, dueling rallies between right-wing groups like the Proud Boys and Patriot Prayer and left-wing anti-fascist uh, organizations and individuals. Um, and those have often ended in a lot of violence, and particularly police violence. In 2018, police dispersed a crowd of left-wing activists, uh, and they shot a man in the back of the head with a grenade and nearly killed him. Uh, there were also cases of where, like, police found a group of right-wing demonstrators from out of state setting up uh, an arms cache on the roof of a parking structure, scoped rifles and the like. And the police didn't tell anyone in the city government. They didn't tell the mayor. Um, they didn't, They didn't. you know, uh, they essentially just kind of let these guys do their thing, told them to put their guns back in their car, but didn't, you know, make a note of what had happened, which is is kind of runs counter to what happens anytime um, there's a, an encounter with a left-wing activist that, that involves some sort of weapon. Like they arrested a, a fellow at the July 4th um, demonstration who had a machete on him, which is not illegal in Portland, Oregon. But they made a big deal about the fact that they'd arrested this man with a machete while they didn't like say anything about this arms cache. So there's like there's a long and there's kind of an ugly history between the activists of Portland and the police. And this is exacerbated by the fact that the Portland police are kind of like most uh, American police departments, only more so. 58 percent of the time when Portland police uh, engage in physical violence, it's against a mentally uh, handicapped person uh, or mentally ill person. So the va- like the majority of their violence is against uh, people who are, are dealing with some sort of like uh, mental health issue. They also, like most police departments, have kind of an outsized rate of doing violence against black citizens. They have a real tendency to uh, use lethal force against uh, unarmed people. It's just, it's a police department with a pretty long and ugly history. And this stretches back to like the 1920s. In the early 1920s, the Ku Klux Klan was big in Portland. And the Portland police had like an active partnership with them, where the Portland police provided 150 men picked by the Klan with guns and arresting powers to act as like a secret police force in the city. So this is this has been going on for a while and the Portland police have kind of proven uh over the last 70 days that they are one of the most if not the most violent police forces in the United States. Um there's some data out right now that suggests that in the last 2 months Portland police have been responsible for significantly more uh excessive force complaints per capita than any other police department in the United States, including the LAPD and the NYPD. Yeah, big hurdles to get over there. You mentioned uh, the the Ku Klux Klan connections way back a century ago. Uh, Michelle and yeah. I, earlier this year, before uh, COVID hit, we interviewed Christian Picciolini, who is a mm-hmm. former white supremacist who now works to both raise awareness of white supremacist organizations and movements, as well as try to bring people out of the movement. But one of the things he said that I don't think has gotten enough attention was that mm-hmm. there has been for years a concerted effort among white nationalist, white racist groups to get into positions uh, you know, in police departments across the country, into the military and stuff like that, places where it's legal for them to use a gun. Has there been any reporting on, you know, specifically Portland's police and, you know, white nationalist infiltration? Oh, absolutely. Uh, and in fact, in 2010, an officer uh, was caught, a guy named Kruger, was caught setting up a series of shrines in a public park to deceased Nazis. And I'm not talking about like, 
like, oh, you consider them Nazis, but he didn't. No, no, these are like members of the Waffen-SS that this guy was setting up shrines for. And he got in trouble, and the police union sued and got him an apology and put back on the force, and he retired eventually with a full pension. So that's like one example. Another might be the fact that uh, emails and texts were leaked out a year and a half or so ago showing a very chummy communication between members of the Proud Boys and an organization called Patriot Prayer and Portland Police, including Portland Police, giving them advice on where to enter a demonstration to avoid police who are searching people for weapons so that they'd be able to more effectively, you know, fight Antifa. So, you know, there's there's a, a pretty well-documented history at this point of at least far-right sympathies among the Portland Police Bureau. And, you know, there's a number of other things that are, are very frustrating to people, including the fact that just in general, the Portland Police seem to uh, display kind of a contempt for the actual people of Portland. And some of this may have to do with the fact that almost none of them live in Portland. Uh, about 80 percent, close to, of the Portland Police Bureau uh, live outside the city limits and generally in much more conservative areas than than the actual city itself. So this is all kind of all comes together to form a very like frustrating picture for the people of Portland. Hmm. Speaking of the people of Portland, and we were talking about it earlier, you know, protests, protests had started out pretty, uh, pretty peaceful in the community coming together. We actually have a clip from uh, your Twitter feed and your your article. So let's play that very quickly. Uh, a pivotal moment in the peaceful protesting. Yeah, that was a nice moment. Yeah, before before the ma'am. I, I think, you know, in your article, you do an incredible job fully covering just kind of how it all started turning into a much more violent situation than how the federal agents ended up in Portland. But we'll start with, you know, the, the rioting in kind of at what point did riots start happening? And, and I kind of use that term, you know, pretty loosely because... From the outside, and you're reading it, you know, mainstream media. Of course, it's sensationalized, and then you know, maybe a, a cell phone knocked out of somebody's hand is is a violent act, according to police. But we'll hear it from you, kind of yeah. what your your thoughts and your views of when it really started yeah. turning the tide. I would say the 29th was the only night that's a really clear riot in the traditional sense. Like on the night of the 29th, which was the night that clip was from, you know, after people um, broke into the Justice Center and the police came, folks sort of were dispersed by tear gas and rioted through the streets. Um, they broke into most of the buildings in the luxury shopping center, stole a bunch of stuff. People lit a lot. Basically, all of the banks downtown got lit on fire at least a little bit. Um, and yeah, that was a riot for sure. Like, I, I, I don't know how you could like that was absolutely the people of Portland going on a riot. Um, every night since then that a riot has been declared, I feel more comfortable calling it a police riot than a riot by the citizens of Portland, because often it would be things like the Tuesday after the 29th. 
um, which I believe was June 2nd. The police had erected a fence and a crowd of a thousand or so people clustered around the fence and the police told people they couldn't touch the fence and nobody touched the fence, but people stood near it. And eventually the police started shooting pepper balls through the fence at people. And when they started doing that, one or two people threw water bottles back at the police, which they used as a justification to tear gas, I think, about seven city blocks worth of traffic. Uh, We were gassed on all sides. People had to run through multiple walls of tear gas just to get out. There were cars careening through clouds because they just blinded random motorists. Um, And once they eventually succeeded in dispersing the crowd for the night, the police were just driving around on the backs of their cars, as they did on a number of nights, shooting at people from moving vehicles and randomly arresting folks who were like stunned and staggering around on the street. And that was that happened. I've lost count of the number of times that's happened as a general rule. When a riot has been declared, there's been very little of what I would call criminal activity or at the most um, a couple of kids maybe lit a fire in a dumpster, um, which is then used as the justification to tear gas, not just the 200 or 300 or 500 other people at the demonstration who hadn't lit a fire, but also random people in neighborhoods. And the police act very differently depending on the neighborhood they're in. You know, there was a protest march that wound up in the old neighborhood of Mayor Ted Wheeler, which is one of the wealthiest neighborhoods in Portland. It was a bunch of mansions. Uh, when the police broke that up, they didn't use any grenades. They didn't use any tear gas. Uh, they came in and they shoved people away, basically, but they did not deploy huge numbers of munitions. Meanwhile, last night in East Portland, a uh, kind of poorer neighborhood, a higher black population, same thing when they're, they, people have been out near Albina, near the Portland Police Union building. They just tear gas neighborhoods. They tear gas a trailer park on Wednesday night. It's something they, they feel no qualms about deploying those munitions when the neighborhood is not as affluent, shall we say. So that's, and, and so like whether or not you have a riot, I think has been pr- kind of predicated on police police behavior. If the police decide to respond by deploying huge amounts of munitions and lots of violence, then they'll declare a riot because as it currently stands, they're not allowed to use most of their riot control weapons unless a riot's been declared, which is why you've had situations like at the the second rally at the Portland Police Union building. Very peaceful demonstration. The most quote-unquote illegal activity I'd seen is somebody had dragged a mattress out into the street. One kid had briefly tried to light it on fire and failed, and then people had just been using it as a trampoline. The police went from, you know, standing around and just sort of uh, guarding the building to declaring a riot in the space of a couple of minutes, and their justification was that somebody broke a window on the building. And a video that came out within minutes showed that what had happened was uh, an individual had been filming a police officer in front of the building, and the officer had smacked the man's phone out of his hand so hard that it flew into the police union building and cracked a window. And so once that happened, the police called a riot and started tear gassing not just the protesters, but a bunch of people in their houses, which, you know, again, keeps keeps on happening. So like, if, if you're talking about, like, riotous behavior, most of what I've seen has come from the, the Portland police, as has most of the behaviors that I thought were likely to end in uh, or result in uh, harm to human life. Now, are the police doing what the city leaders want them to do? I mean, does the mayor disagree with this? Does the mayor have any power? Who, what does the police chief think? The mayor is the police commissioner and the mayor has a, a lot of power that he chooses not to use um, because I think fundamentally, number one, one of the interesting dimensions of um the conflict in Portland is that everybody on the right hates Mayor Ted Wheeler for uh, not being harsh enough on left-wing demonstrators. Everybody on the left uh, hates Ted Wheeler for being basically, uh, you know, arm in arm with the police bureau. 
uh, and for not uh, or and for not taking more effective action against like right wing gang members who have shown up in town. But no matter what, where you stand politically, pretty much everybody dislikes Ted Wheeler. And that's kind of what the uh, his poll numbers have shown, because he's in a runoff election right now. And it was a pretty, he did have a pretty comfortable lead before all this started. And it's narrowed to basically nothing. Probably has something to do with the fact that his police deployed tear gas at least 96 times over the course of two months. I had my videos analyzed and just in the month of June, I was tear gassed on video more than 50 times. So it's like, you know, there's a lot of anger at Ted Wheeler because of these situations his police put people into. Um, Part of what brought people out into the street was being subject to random police violence. I think there are a lot of folks who had never been radical demonstrators and would not have gotten involved in radical politics if Ted Wheeler's cops had not repeatedly tear gassed them. You know, that's something I hear a lot. Uh, It made people really angry at first, and then they kind of learned how to deal with it, and then it became... I don't know. It, it, there, there's an element to which has become part of the culture, just like going out and uh, dealing with police riot lines and stuff. But yeah, the, the level of violence that's been meted out by the police has ensured that this thing has lasted. And it's why it's going on for 70 plus nights. If on day two, right, you know, day one was a riot, police are going to do stuff to disperse a riot. If on day two, when protesters gathered to block a couple of intersections, police had let them rather than tear gassing four blocks of traffic, there wouldn't have been mass demonstrations the next couple of days. And I think this thing would have died out. But kind of at every step of the way, the police and the mayor have ensured that this goes as badly as it possibly can, which is part of why I know Ted Wheeler got a lot of national attention when he got tear gassed, but that did not play very well to the crowd that he was in, nor did it play very well to um, the people of Portland kind of uh, more broadly. Um, There's a lot of anti-Ted Wheeler graffiti that you can kind of see in the streets. And at the time, I don't know if it was clear in the videos y'all have seen, but the whole crowd was yelling at Ted. Because, you know, everyone in that crowd had been tear gassed by his cops for weeks before they were tear gassed by federal agents. So it just kind of came across as hollow. Like, what are you doing, Ted? Like, you you don't get to pretend to be an anti-tear gas crusader. Your cops tear gassed us like a hundred something times. Hmm. So that begs the question, who exactly... Who exactly called or sent the the federal agents? I mean, I know that there's been some rumors circulating out there in the Internet world that uh, that there might have been some I'm going to use John's phrase concerted effort, maybe or planning of uh, folks to perhaps be careful here and not (laughs) and not exactly come out and say it. But uh, perhaps, you know, there had been some kind of plan behind the scenes to have federal agents there. And so how did the federal agents get to Portland? Who who called for the agents? Well, I mean, I think it, it, it's I, I don't think we have the exact information or the exact like um, I, I don't think we can say to a point of perfect certainty. But what initially started bringing them out, I believe, was actually a, a set of actions carried out by some young activists in town to flip over some statues. And so they went after a statue of George Washington. There was a Thomas Jefferson statue, uh, a Christopher Columbus statue. Uh, and this was, you know, particularly the, um, the the Washington statue being flipped over went viral nationwide. Tucker Carlson talked about it. It made a lot of people angry. And that's what got the president starting to really address what was happening in Portland. Um, and it was within, you know, a few days of this. Because, so the Justice Center, which is Portland police headquarters and also the city jail, uh, is directly next door to the federal courthouse, which is kind of the the big castle-like structure that that for a couple of weeks the citizens of Portland were repeatedly assaulting. The federal courthouse had been just kind of 
there for most of the demonstrations. People had covered it in graffiti as they had everything around the Justice Center. But nightly protests were at the Justice Center and against the Justice Center and the courthouse. Nobody really focused on it. That started to change in early July when the feds began coming out. And I I think kind of the first big night for them was um, July 4th when uh, and and July 4th was interesting because it was, you know, we'd had dwindling protests for the last couple of weeks. And then that night, because it was the fourth, about a thousand people showed up and they had all of the fireworks in the world. And they were initially launching them at the Justice Center. And then uh, the police LRAD came out and told them not to launch fireworks at the federal courthouse. And the LRAD is like a big sound cannon that the police use to give instructions. And one of the things that you can guarantee is that when the police tell a crowd in Portland not to do something, that's the thing they're going to do next. So this crowd, which was just kind of mostly shooting fireworks at the Justice Center, aiming them for kind of the jail cells where their friends were to give them like a show, basically, and shooting them at a camera that was like filming protesters. Everyone switched over to shooting at the federal courthouse as soon as the LRAD came up. And the feds inside started shooting back out. And what kind of proceeded was this almost like a medieval siege where you had like these these murder holes opening up on the front of this courthouse and federal agents shooting rubber bullets and uh, pepper balls out and dumping tear gas through these holes in the roof. And eventually, like, you had a big running street battle. And that was the first night, I think, that we had both federal agents and cops out in the street working together. Um, and then after that, the feds started coming out more and more often. It, was, it would happen kind of at random. You would have these small gatherings, you know, the kind of nightly gatherings out in front of the Justice Center would often be just like 150 people or so, sometimes even less. And feds, sometimes people would be protesting, you know, the Justice Center or the, the courthouse. Sometimes people would just be sitting in the park and the feds would rush out um, for things like urinating in the park. They would tackle people and drag them back into this place. Or, you know, at one point, a, a woman with surveying chalk, tried to outline the exact extent of the federal courthouse's boundaries so that people wouldn't accidentally cross it. And while she was doing that, they ran out, grabbed her, arrested her, took her service dog away from her, and dragged her back inside, put her dog in a uh, a kennel. Yeah, it was just like, it, it, it was this kind of really random violence that was very different from what the police did. The police, it was always very ordered. There was kind of a series of warnings you'd get. Um, the feds would just sort of come out shooting and arrest people. And one night, you know, there was a a small demonstration. The friends I have who were there covering it say it was very low key. People weren't engaging in property destruction or anything. And um, the feds started running out and doing their thing, arresting people. And at one point, a young man named Donovan LaBella stood out in front of them with a, a speaker over his head. And they shot a tear gas grenade at him. And on the video, you can see Donovan kind of picks it up and tosses it gently away. And he's mostly tossing it away from the car in front of him because these grenades catch on fire and they've burnt a couple of cars in the city. So he doesn't throw it at the agents. He just tosses it a few feet away from him um, to keep it away from both him and this vehicle that he's next to. And he continues to hold his speakers above his head. And a federal agent, maybe 30 feet away, shoots him right between the eyes with a rubber bullet and completely shatters his skull, giving him permanent brain damage. Basically, his whole head had to be rebuilt. It's just the video's horrible. And that kind of started the process of galvanizing the people of Portland against the feds. And then a video that a local activist took of the snatch van, of the unmarked van arresting that activist, or at least detaining that activist, was kind of the second big thing that happened that got people kind of fully radicalized against the federal agents. And for a couple of weeks, people really stopped. The Portland police stopped being a focus of anyone's protests. And there were, again, these massive thousands and thousands of people, demonstrations out in front of the federal courthouse. 
most of which would end in these massive, horrific fights with the federal agents and uh, unbelievable amounts of tear gas being dropped. Um, I think probably the federal courthouse and its courtyard are the most heavily tear gassed space on the planet right now. I'd be surprised if there's a lot of other competition, maybe somewhere in Palestine. But it, it's like they would they would dump so much gas that the reports were getting suggest that at least the first two to three floors of the building are basically uninhabitable for people out wearing a respirator right now. And of course, they deploy lots of impact munitions. They had these really scary battle lines and they had all these weird ways of deploying tear gas. One of the first nights I was out there, there was a crowd of maybe 60 people going up against these feds and they brought out this device that's a bucket. It's like this huge burning bucket that looks like a medieval censer, like the Catholic priests would have like waved around in the 1300s. And this bucket has just get tear gas inside it. And they have this massive metal ladle that they like reach into it with and pull tear gas out and just ladle it into the streets in huge quantities. And it looked like something out of um out of a horror movie, just seeing people walking around with this like flaming bucket full of poison. And then they brought out a chemical fogger uh, on one of the last nights the feds were in town, which is like this device that's meant to distribute pesticides around fields that they were launching tear gas through. And like the makers of that device were horrified and started like freaking out on Twitter and because it was not meant to ever be used that way. Um, and that's kind of one of the things that's scariest about what's happened with the feds in particular is all of the gas that they've been using a variety of different gases. We don't exactly know what they, all of the things they've dropped on us, but a lot of the fed gases are significantly stronger than anything else. Like eat through your respirator strong. And we just don't know what their, what the long-term impacts are. We don't know exactly what they've done to us. We don't know what happens when you get hit by this much tear gas. Uh, one of the nights I was out there, they dropped so much that the tear gas formed a dust devil, essentially like a tornado of tear gas in the middle of downtown. It was really something to behold. And I, I now things have kind of peeled back again. The feds haven't been coming out and people haven't really been protesting at the courthouse. The government, you know, pulled some of them out of the city, although most of them are still here. People are back to protesting the police again. And that's kind of where we are now. Um, and, you know, a lot of people are kind of as we go into this lull period, people are are like collecting munitions canisters that they, they got off the field and having them analyzed. And Kaiser Kaiser's doing a, a study on like tear gas exposure in Portland. Like a lot of folks are kind of focusing on trying to figure out health wise what the long term impacts of all of this are going to be to us. When the news of the unmarked vans and the unidentified federal agents or whatever they are, forces in Portland came out and started spreading and Trump started talking about sending troops to other cities. There were some folks saying basically that, you know, Portland is being used as kind of the Spain, the Spanish Civil War sort of, of, of testing a lot of these methods and these troops and, and this approach. What, what do you think about that? Yeah, I think there's a lot of truth in that. I, I think there, I think more than just even necessarily testing these specific methods of repression, although I do think that's important, they're kind of testing people's willpower, right? I think there was kind of an assumption that, um, number one, the liberals in Portland, once, you know, black clad anarchist kids started being grabbed off the street by feds, that like the city's liberals would kind of let it happen um, because there was, you know, had been historically a decent amount of antipathy towards kind of far less left activists by Portland's more moderate uh, majority. And the opposite happened, right? Like at, at kind of the height of things, you had a bunch of 
suburban moms, like one of the wildest things I watched was a bunch of suburban moms and black clad Antifa kids tearing down the doors of a federal courthouse. And then when the agents, federal agents inside came out to try to disperse them, like formed a phalanx of shields and started hucking bottles at men with AR-15s. Like it was very much. So there were that, like, I, I think that was in one case where the government learned maybe it is not as easy to suppress these movements with force as you might think, because all the force did was bring a heck of a lot more people out into the streets. Now, I, I think in terms of methods, there's there's probably some truth to that as well. And I, I don't know what they would have learned other than that tear gas does not work in the long term, right? It's, it's, it's a short-term method of dispersing a crowd that actually ensures the crowd keeps coming back in the long run, both because people get angry when you repeatedly tear gas them, but also because it kind of lends a um, there's an element to which dealing with tear gas and those kinds of police weapons becomes a sort of a game. Um, and people, I think, got very addicted to trying to find ways to fight the tear gas, to keep the crowd together, to reform the crowd, to continue marching like it became there were elements of it that were that felt like a game and that also felt like a culture, right, like a community of protest formed in Portland that had its own language and its own in-jokes. People worshipped an elk god briefly. Uh, it was like, it, it was this, there was like this fun, silly aspect of it that kind of Riot Ribs, I think, embodied perfectly, which was the rib restaurant that was at the center of the protest for a while until it had an armed coup. So it, it's it's this, um, there's this element of what's been happening in Portland that I, I think that probably what the government has learned from this if it's been paying attention, is that methods of very visible repression um, do nothing but guarantee more unrest, and that these kind of traditionally liberal cities like Portland um, are capable of a lot more active resistance um, than might be otherwise uh, expected. And that kind of what seems to be working for them much more than the violence is kind of more coercive and low key methods of uh, of 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 social control, which they're they're trying to push now, right? There's definitely been, on a number of occasions, people with kind of police affiliations who have started showing up in the crowds with like bullhorns and stuff to try to direct people in different in different areas, like away from carrying out more uh, kind of aggressive actions. Um, and there's been just sort of in general. Uh, paranoia around that has created a lot of infighting within the activist community. Um, and so I think in the last couple of weeks, what actually you've seen in Portland is that kind of mistrust and paranoia about police informants mixed with just enough of a change in police attitudes that it kind of it has encouraged one chunk of protesters while kind of throwing another under the bus. That's been a much smarter strategy for the state. Um, and that succeeded in kind of pushing the numbers of these demonstrations back down again in a way that kind of just naked, unchecked violence couldn't do. And now that the protests are smaller and that they have moved away from the center of town, police are free to get a lot more physically violent with like sticks and fists and stuff, which is what we've been seeing the last couple of nights. If you're joining us live, please send us your questions or comments. We'll try to get them to Robert. We actually have a clip, uh, an example of the police riot. We'd like to play that uh, to continue our conversation. And they are deploying extreme violence to do it. Look at this. They're beating the Black things and tear gas in the center of the square. Look at this cop hitting her with his stick. Look at the violence he's doing. Look at this man. 
Yeah, I got a little bit, uh, got a little bit on Ray there. Yeah. Yeah. So you, yeah. Going back to what you were saying, Robert, you know, hopefully the, the federal government is paying attention to the fact that, you know, the more repression, the more it's going to bring out, you know, folks in, in a liberal city like Portland. And this is fanning the flames. But um, I opened up the program with a comment or, or uh, the mayor, Mayor Ted Wheeler, addressing, right, the unlawful assembly and, and calling it murder to, to that level. <laughs> I mean, I, 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 what about the local government? I mean, the mayor's got to be paying attention. Like, you know, yeah. trying to turn the narrative in that way, I would think, is making it very much worse or could possibly make it worse. Yeah. You know, one of the things that, again, they should have learned earlier is that, when you lose all sense of proportion um, and react uh, in an improportionate way, it makes it it gives people permission to um, to kind of lose any sense of proportion themselves. The thing that Ted Wheeler is calling attempted murder um, and a direct threat to human life was uh, a small group of activists hammering on the doors, uh, the the reinforced, like, like ballistic glass doors of a police precinct with a wrench, beating the door with a stick, and then setting a trash can with a fire in it in front of the door, which had some pieces of wood that were treated to be fire-resistant in front of them. No point did the fire spread. Uh, at no point was there any danger of it spreading because the building facade that they had this fire in front of was made entirely out of brick and glass. Um, and, of course, most of the exits of the building were completely completely unimpeded, which was made very clear when the police rushed out of all of them to disperse the crowd. You can argue that setting a fire, you know, there's always a chance that somebody gets hurt because it's a fire. But it was, again, a fairly small trash fire that people had trouble getting going like the actual goal of setting up that fire as with the actual goal of hammering on the door nobody thought they were going to destroy the precinct right there were a hundred something activists there it was a full police precinct nobody thought they were going to occupy or take it over the goal was to do damage to the front of the building and force the police to come out and do the thing that the police always do which ended you know in like a a a trailer park and a number of other streets in the city being tear gassed along with just the at uh, along with the activists and kind of the goal of these protests in general is to force the police to respond to kind of highlight the fact that the police only have one method of response to crowds, which is to escalate. They don't have any ability to de-escalate. They don't have any, any ability to talk people down. They don't have any real understanding of, of how to de-escalate angry groups of people. All they have is bull rushing and deploying grenades. Um, that's the only tool they've ever used here. And that's kind of the point the activists make every night is we will bring the police out and they will inevitably start gassing and beating people because they don't have anything else that they know how to do. Well, and, and isn't that I mean, that's the tactic then the, some of these activists on the left are doing. And there's the argument that that's on the right. What Trump was trying to do with this was that he knew these federal troops are not going to bring peace to Portland. They're not going to cut down the murder rate in Chicago. They're not going to, you know, do whatever they weren't trying to do in Milwaukee. It's specifically that they would be there and they would get the activist to overreact or to react in some way that he can then turn around to his supporters and say, see, the crazies are there. That's why you have to reelect me. Yeah, we'll we'll see. I mean, maybe. I, I guess part of my issue in thinking that there was much of a plan was how random the behavior of the feds seem to be. Their, I don't think, 
it definitely didn't go according to plan because what wound up happening is the federal agents would deploy an impossible amount of tear gas every night and activists would blow the tear gas back into the courthouse. And they've probably rendered it uninhabitable forever just because of the sheer amount of tear gas that's floated back in. So these agents were just kind of standing around coated in paint, covered in water from water bottles and soaking in their own tear gas every night for like two weeks. And I can't imagine that was the plan because it didn't it didn't accomplish anything. I guess maybe the president like got got video clips that are going to be useful to him out of it. I know there's some evidence that they wanted to provoke um, some like DHS memos and stuff that they wanted to provoke stuff like this to get footage of of left wing activists looking scary. So maybe that was that was some part of the idea. Um, but it 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 really seems it, it all seems slapped together. You know, the entirety of the president's response seemed slapped together. It seemed like he saw that people were angry about this video of a statue being flipped over and figured he could win quick points because the protests were dying down in Portland at that point. Right. You were getting 150, 200 people on a decent night, you know, maybe 300 on the weekends. They were getting smaller and smaller by the week. And I think he I think his assumption was one or two nights of Fed violence. That'll put an end to it because it's already dying. And then I can take credit for for quashing this this rebellion in Portland. And obviously the opposite happened. I just don't I'm not I I certainly have no issue believing that there was a plan to impact the president's reelection strategy in his actions in Portland. But I don't think it was a very well thought out one. Just quickly to add to that, uh, I mean, well, it, it, plan or no plan, but when you go on Fox News, such as the CBP commissioner did, Mark Morgan, and, and yeah. all local activist criminals, I mean, there there had to have been some kind of, you know, media plan, at least on this. John, we've got questions from the audience. We do have a question from the audience. Uh, someone writes, I wonder if Robert Evans would comment on ways to respond to these softer, more successful tactics that he describes as causing infighting among the protesters. Well, you know, that's very difficult because I I can't even entirely say that they are tactics. I can say that there have been some sketchy things that have happened in Portland with within the activist community and similar things that have happened in other cities. So like early on, the protest movement got split from the people who between the people who were kind of going out every night to to provoke the police into using horrible violence and the group that just wanted to kind of march around and not get into any conflicts with the police. Uh, that group eventually became an organization called Rose City Justice. And there there is some evidence of some kind of weird ties between some of the early members in particular and local law enforcement. One of the first guys uh, that they had up at the head of the movement, a dude named Life Tavares, uh, was later found to be a convicted child molester. Uh, he molested a five-year-old um, and had just pretty recently gotten out of prison. So like there were a lot, and, and this was a guy who was kind of up in front of the crowd doing everything he could to keep people from having confrontations with the police. So there were a lot of within particularly kind of the more f- radical left-wing segments of the protest community, people who were like, okay, well, this guy has, this guy was just in jail he comes in out of nowhere to be at the head of these gigantic marches where he's leading people away from confrontations with the police. That seems sketchy as hell. Um, and there were some other situations like that, right? And whether or not they're true, you know, this kind of, a lot of this goes back to like the FBI's COINTELPRO program, which is in like the, the 60s and 70s. It's how they took, tore, tore apart the Black Panthers. 
And um, the director of the FBI, J. Edgar Hoover, kind of when they were instituting this program of infiltrating left wing movements, of sort of seeding them with people who are going to feed the FBI information and who are going to like entrap activists and, and you know, get them assassinated or, or imprisoned. When this whole plan was being sort of executed, uh, one of the things Hoover said is he, he didn't want in, he wanted any left wing activist going into a meeting for the local Communist Party or whatever for for decades into the future to not know if the people sitting around him at the meeting were FBI informants or not. And whether or not the FBI continues anything like this, there's tremendous paranoia within the activist community about it. So whenever you get weird things like that happening, when you get these groups, these activists who come in from seemingly out of nowhere and you know decide they want to split the movement and lead people away from the police on marches to nowhere, there's going to be a lot of folks within the community who start assuming that there's, there's something sketchy there. And it, it, it's worth noting that kind of as the protests died down in late June or late July, these people kind of disappeared. The Rose City Justice folks, these kind of more liberal protesters who'd been leading these massive marches, once those marches stopped drawing in large numbers, because they were just kind of marches to nowhere, these people went away. And then they all suddenly came back after the feds came onto the picture and Portland was getting large crowds again. And there started to be these like big fights between segments of the activist community. People were like threatened with tasers over their desire to like not or over their desire to like confront the cops or like light a fire in front of the courthouse or something. But there was like this weird kind of self-policing culture that grew up very suddenly, like once the numbers came back. So every time you've seen a large chunk of new people start coming out into the streets, you also get these kind of uh, th- these shadier folks who decide that they want to be back in the movement and leading it because now there's numbers again. And those folks are never out when it's 150 people confronting the cops. But if a thousand people show up, they'll run into the term that Portland has developed is swooping. They'll like run into the front of the march with a bullhorn and start giving orders um, under the assumption that like people who are already marching will just sort of follow the loudest person. And it does work sometimes. Um, And again, it's one of those things where there's there's some weird police connections with some of them. A number of folks who have uh, kind of fit that definition have been seen like working with talking with the police uh, during actions. Uh, But there's also just a great deal of paranoia. Um, And so it's kind of anytime somebody does something someone else doesn't like, there's this risk that people will start, you know, accusing each other of being, you know, police informants or part of the FBI or whatever. It's, It's just a thing. It's become a very paranoid protest culture, and so that's that's become increasingly a problem. And it's less of an issue at these kind of lo- the direct action marches like we have had the last couple of nights, the one that the mayor called a violent march where people like show up with the explicit plan of like, we're all going to get together. We're going to march to police property and we're going to commit crimes there. We're going to like damage the property. You know, those marches have seem to have a lot less infighting and kind of the only people who show up these days at those events are the folks who are like, yeah, we're all on the same page. We're all going to go and commit a series of crimes against police property together. And, you know, so I, I at at the moment, I think kind of infighting is at a low ebb because numbers are at a low ebb. When there's another surge in numbers, you know, if something brings thousands of people back out in the streets again, you'll have these kind of conflicts reappear where you start having these other segments, you know, where you start seeing like groups of people trying to split the protest community um, into different pieces for kind of their own benefit. That just seems to happen every time there's a lot of folks out. Yeah. And you, you, that kind of I think partly answers a question we just got from someone in the audience, which is to ask you if you could give us some estimates of numbers of both how many people uh, each night over the two weeks shown up and how many fed federal agents 
uh, just to get perspective of size. Oh, geez. Yeah. I mean, during like the height of the resistance to the federal agents, there were like five, six thousand people showing up around the federal courthouse. And that would have been I think it would have been Monday, like the the I think it would have been about Monday, the 20th um, was our biggest night where we had. Oh, no. So it would have um, Yeah. Uh, Might have been. Yeah, somewhere around the 19th or 20th would have been like the biggest night where we had five, 6,000 people surrounding the federal courthouse and the crowd tore down the fence and the feds sallied out and there was just this massive fight over this gap in the fence. And, you know, feds just pumping impact munitions. I saw people's helmets shot off their heads. There were just like lines of folks bleeding from the face and eyes from impact rounds. And like the whole time as they're pumping tear gas into this crowd, which is set up like this really effective shield wall and they had um, uh, leaf blowers to keep the gas away and even box fans. As this is all going on, like the federal agents are sweeping us with automatic rifles too. You could see the lasers going across people's chests. That was like the, the, the high point of everything, right? And kind of in the nights leading up to that, you'd had multiple thousands of people out pretty much every night for like a week to protest the federal agents. And after that night, after they really dispersed that crowd with a, a tremendous amount of violence, that was one of maybe the ugliest night we've seen so far, things began to die back down. The federal agents were removed from the city. Uh, well, not removed, but like were basically put back in a different building uh, and told not to come out anymore. And the protest kind of refocused against the Portland Police Bureau. And now we're back down to maybe a couple hundred people a night, two, three hundred on the weekends. Um, you know, where you were getting mar you were getting multiple marches of a thousand or more people for a couple of weeks there at sort of the height of the Fed thing. We're uh, winding down on time and I wanted to I wanted to basically read the end of your article, uh, which is is pretty much a, a warning for many of us. But please pay attention to the videos of officers ripping people's face masks off to spray mace directly into their mouths. Please pay attention to the video of Donovan LaBella, blood gushing from his head, seizing on the ground. And yes, please pay attention to the videos of men in full combat gear abducting activists off the street. This could, you know, the, and, and, and it ends with the warning that uh, what happened in Portland could happen to any city in the country. But yeah, I would like for you to add your thoughts uh, and extend upon that. You've seen the, you've seen what happened in Portland. Now the agents have withdrawn, you know, but we're, people are still protesting. There still is police violence. I guess the, the big question is kind of with your warning, what, what happens now? I don't know that anyone has a clear, real knowledge about what happens next. You know, we're kind of in unprecedented territory here. For a while there, you had actual elected government leaders in a major American city um, talking about federal occupiers and calling other members of the elected government federal collaborators, right? You have this culture of rebellion that's grown not just in Portland, but in a number of American cities. And uh, I think there's probably going to be some folks mistakenly on the side of law enforcement who think that it's it's been clamped down on since the start of the uprising. But we're we're coming into a month where all of the eviction protections put in place at the start of the coronavirus are expiring, where unemployment is running out, and where tens of millions of people are still out of work or not working enough to make ends meet. So you're about to get, I think, a lot of fuel for a nationwide protest movement. And we've seen in Portland how it will go. If you stay out in the streets long enough, uh, if you make demands that the state is not willing to meet, and you are not dispersed by the police, they're going to send 
these federal troops out. And we know what the federal troops do. They shoot people in the face with rubber bullets. Uh, they drench your city in so much tear gas um, that it causes its own weather systems. They will deploy as much violence as they possibly can to break you. And one of the things that Portland shows is how that process goes, right? It's a map of this is the the, the pathway of escalation that the state will use uh, if you continue to resist it. The other thing Portland shows is here are some like Here's a synthesis of methods from around the world of actually physically resisting these people. Portland protesters took a lot from Hong Kong. Um, they took some things from the Maidan protesters in Ukraine. Um, they invented some things of their own. Uh, and if you pay attention to sort of what they physically did on the ground to resist the weaponry of the state as it was deployed against them in increasing quantities, um, I think you get a roadmap for what what could actually push this thing back on kind of a national scale. Because at the end of the day, there aren't that many federal agents. There aren't that many police officers. So if, you know, if people are able to stay out in the streets and maintain physical resistance, I do think they can get what they want. I think Minneapolis, you know, is the perfect roadmap there. I think Seattle's a pretty good one, too. Both of those cities have succeeded in forcing massive changes in the way law enforcement is done in their in their city um, as a result of their physical resistance. Uh, Portland has not been as successful yet in terms of actually getting permanent concessions from law enforcement um, and from the city government. But Portland is still out there in the streets uh, trying to make sure that it will. When the uh, the federal agents in, in Portland stories first started to spread, there was a lot of confusion about exactly who they were, where they were from, because, of course, they weren't identified. You know, were they these mm -hmm. Eric Prince Renta agent people? Were they from the uh, Border Patrol uh, uh agents. I mean, what, what do we know now of who they were and where they're from and who ran them? Most of them seem to have been BORTAC, like, um, which is Border Patrol's SWAT team, basically, and um, uh, U.S. Marshals. Uh, the people who shot Donovan LaBella in the head were U.S. Marshals. So th th it's mostly been like CBP um, and uh, U.S. Marshals um, guys who have been out there in the streets most nights. I think there is the, the FBI did have some threat response or some high threat response team folks in the city. I don't I didn't see anyone clearly labeled as FBI. But part of the difficulty is that often they would just say Homeland Security police or whatever. So you, it would be kind of difficult to tell who was with what unit, which has been a problem in Portland since before the feds got here. But, yeah, it does appear to be a lot of Border Patrol folks, um, which you know, the 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 you can kind of tell in the way that they use gas that they're not used to deploying force against people who are U.S. citizens um, and who have the ability to sue them, because that's something that happened repeatedly against the feds. And they they've repeatedly lost in court and they seem to be kind of bewildered by it. And particularly when you're talking about like these 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 Border Patrol units, they learned how to use tear gas at the border against migrants. And yeah, they, I, I think we're kind of moving a lot, taking a lot of those tactics that they'd learned on the border and applying them uh, in the city of Portland because they used the gas very differently than the police did. Um, and I think one thing we've seen is that when these sort of law enforcement organizations who are always out there doing violence have that violence, have to do that violence in the middle of a major American city to a crowd of citizens, people react a lot differently than they do when it's, you know, migrant caravans in southern Arizona. 
we, we've talked a lot about uh, the Portland mayor and, and his reaction, his role in this. How has Oregon's governor, this is a question from one of our viewers, how has Oregon's governor responded uh, from your smile, I'm assuming not a hero? You know, um, there's been some good responses from Kate Brown, um, particularly early on when the police were using uh, not just unreasonable amounts of tear gas, but were when cops were constantly arresting journalists and using force against journalists. Uh, She was kind of broadly on the right side of that one. And she was very much on the right side of the Fed issue. Now, her issue is that she wanted to just bring in Oregon State Police. Um, And now Oregon State Police are, are in Portland policing demonstrations and they're very, very violent. Um, and they're doing a lot of the same things the feds were. They're worse at being violent than the feds. You know, the feds have a lot more weaponry, um, a lot more kinds of grenades and a lot more experience hurting people. So they're they're certainly better at dispersing crowds than the Oregon State Police. But the Oregon State Police does use essentially the same kind of tactics. You know, these big bull rushes, lots of grenades, gas whenever they can, impact weapons. So I, I, I think in general, the problem with both the governor and the mayor is that they they both fundamentally believe that large numbers of heavily armed police are a way that you deal with demonstrations, that that will ever have a long term impact in in stopping them, that you force people to behave differently at these events by deploying violence against them. Um, and I think the lesson the crowd is repeatedly trying to teach their politicians is, no, you cannot. It's interesting you make the, those points. Uh, once I was talking with someone who was, I forget exactly what their role was. I think they might have been a professor at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, my alma mater. Um, and they were talking about the, the pro- student protests of the 1960s, the anti-Vietnam War protests. And there were some cases there where, you know, police were brought in. Uh, I don't know if they're National Guards or whatever, but they were brought in from outside of Madison. And they turned violent and and awful things were happening. It obviously caused further radicalization. And he was saying what they, one of the lessons they kind of learned after that was, yeah, you don't bring them in from outside of the city because there are a lot of people from, you know, a lot of, of uh, officers from smaller areas who would frankly love to come in and, and beat the head in on some left-wing, you know, Madison mm-hmm. student protester. And uh, it sounds like you've got that not just with the state police, not just with the federal agents, but as you said, most of the city police themselves are not from the city. Yeah, I think there's this mistaken belief, too, that like the protesters want to be out there doing this. Um, I think most people are very tired of being terrified and assaulted every night of ending their evenings with just like police riot vans rushing around them and cops screaming at them to like depart to the like, like people don't enjoy what happens at the end of most of these demonstrations. They just enjoy living under a police state less, uh, and they see their police constantly pushing for more power, constantly deploying more violence, and constantly fighting tooth and nail against any sort of reform or accountability. And at this point, every political solution has failed to such an extent that the only reasonable thing they can see is spending every single night out getting the shit kicked out of them, um, because that's the only thing left for them. And that probably answers the, the question someone just sent in, which was, has there been any sort of movement on, on the Portland political uh, scene to address their, their concerns? Yes, um, they cut about 25 million bucks out of the police budget. Um, they disbanded the um, gun violence task force, which was kind of not- notoriously ineffective and violent, and the um, one of the gang units, uh, and they've removed um, school resource officers from Portland schools. So there have been 
some changes. Now, Seattle is in the process of like cutting police funding by like 50%, which I think most of the people out in the streets in Portland would kind of consider the minimum thing necessary. Uh, if they're going to like chill out for a while, I think you would see a lot of the crowd be like, okay, well, we cut them down by half, you know, we'd prefer they be gone entirely, but whatever, we'll call it a win. I need to get some sleep. Um, now, that said, you do have, I, I think most of the protesters would consider themselves pretty hardcore abolitionists at this point. So I, I, there's a lot of calls to get rid of the Portland Police Bureau entirely. And I would say most of the people out in the streets every night want that. Um, in terms of what's actually possible to sell to the rest of the city, I do think something like Seattle has accomplished is possible here, especially as police violence continues and they continue to sort of radicalize neighborhoods against them. Well, Robert, we certainly appreciate people like you and your role is so important during these times. And what I mean by that is, you know, the recent times, uh, press freedom, journalists uh, such as yourself are under attack uh, with the rise of social media and you cover extremist groups. And we know that there are several ties, of, uh, you know, kind of increasing the, 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 the hatred coupled with uh, what we're dealing with here that could lead to danger as well for those of us who are, are seeking the truth. And so the last question for you really is uh, is about you and people like you and how we keep you safe and protect you. You've got a lawsuit against the Portland Police Bureau for mm-hmm. this type of uh, you know violence and aggression against journalists and reporters. And we've been doing a whole lot of covering and, and you know other journalists who have been under attack as well. So we'd like to hear from you, kind of your your thoughts on how we continue to fight for press freedom and keep journalists like yourself safe. You know, don't. Don't take it lying down. Continue to don't when police in your area arrest journalists, assault them, um, show up in the streets, um, but also support those people as individuals. Um, You know, uh, there's not a lot of money in journalism right now. Uh, Most of the journalists who have kind of been out covering this every night are more or less volunteers because the the kind of the bigger local news agencies don't send people out most nights anymore. So you can support those individuals. I think to a certain extent, it's up to those individuals to kind of take space and hold it and and push for the extent of their rights. Like in Portland, we have a restraining order against the police right now that stops them from telling journalists where to stand. And so we have a lot of journalists who will get very close to the police and and the police will shove them and push them places um, and smack their cameras. Cameras, um, and those journalists will continue moving in very close to the police and yelling at them when the police try to give them orders that the police don't have the right to do that. And there's an element of it that's that's not strictly necessary from a news gathering standpoint, right? If you were standing five feet to the left or whatever, you would be able to get the shot you want just as well. But it's kind of about the premise of the thing, right? It's It's about the fact that if you don't rush in to take advantage of the full swoop of your rights, they will be taken from you and pushed and eaten away at by by the kind of people who don't want you to have them. And that's true for journalists working out in the field, but it's also true for all of us. So like one of the things that I do think is, is good for people to do if they're not comfortable taking part in direct action um, is to come out to these demonstrations and film the police. Um, and film the violence that the police do, because at the end of the day, the only thing that will have a long term impact that will that might be positive from all this is if people are eventually convinced on a large enough scale that things need to change because uh, the police are going to fight any kind of change as long as they possibly can. So it's a matter of getting the truth out to as many people as possible. Um, so support the folks who are doing that. 
And, you know, if it's possible for you to do that work yourself, be careful, um, you know, be be diligent, uh, avoid filming the faces of protesters if you can, um, but come out and, and film the police. Uh, it's always a good thing to film the police. They should be filmed every hour, every minute of, of, of their day doing whatever it is that they're doing. That's the only way we get accountability. Robert, thank you so much for joining us here at the Commonwealth Club, and thank you for all the work that you do. Please support Robert Robert's work, uh, support his podcast, Behind the Bastards. Also support his work as a contributor and reporter at Bellingcat, and also you can follow him on, on Twitter. Thank you so much for joining us again, and John, I'll let you have the last word. Just wanted to say thank you for joining us, everybody, and you can find this and more programs at commonwealthclub.org slash online. So have a good weekend.